Day Power, Scramble for Africa, Zionism edition. Which uh, I originally didn't even imagine, but you you got there. And <laughs> apparently we're going to try to keep this under two hours today. I think we will. I think we will. It's a well-organized story. It's got a, it's got a beginning, middle, and an end. <laughs> it really okay. does. And uh, it's it's amazing. It's amazing, man. And I, you know, I wanted to include it here in the in the Africa part because it's always considered like a weird little interlude in Zionist history. But mm-hmm. you know, we just talked about East Africa. We just got us up to this point chronologically. So it's interesting to see all the people that want to get their hands on this land mm. and just think, you know, it should be ours. It no, it should be ours. Uh, it's quite a story. But, you know, the other thing about this story is it really, it's it, it gets you to a lot of things about Zionism that have been, um, I don't know, de-emphasized, let's say, in the historical <laughs> how it ended up, right? Yeah. So it didn't, ha- it, it wasn't necessarily going to end up exactly the way that it ended up, that's for sure. Uh, so there are a bunch of threads that we're gonna we're gonna weave together. Um, one of them is what Zionism, where Zionism comes from, uh, which is a surprising story. Uh, then there's uh, the the immediate causes of the Zionists looking for a place to colonize, which has a lot to do with anti-Semitism in the Russian Empire and specifically the pogroms of 1881. And then from there. Uh, the, we're going to get to the the so-called rise and fall of the uh, the East Africa offer or the Uganda plan or the Uganda proposal. There's all kinds of different names for it. Um, and that's going to involve a whole lot about one Mr. Theodore Herzl. Mm. So without further ado. Uh, <laughs> um, so I, I, ra- I think I passed you Shlomo Sand, didn't I? The invention of the... Yeah. I think it's the invention of the Jewish people, was it? Um, And Sand's whole point is, I think Sand lives and works in in Israel. Um, And his whole point, though, was like, it's not um, the Jews that you meet from Europe um, are, are, are people who converted. They're Europeans who converted to Judaism sometime in, in the Middle Ages. So there was a time uh, later than you think that Judaism was a proselytizing religion. And he specific, he spends a lot of time on the uh, place uh, called the Khazar Khanate, yeah. uh, the Khazars. And so, and that was in Southern Russia. And then there are lots of other names that he drops that I had no idea existed. Um, the Adiabin kingdom of Mesopotamia, the Himarite kingdom of Southwest Arabia, Dahia al-Kahina of Northern Africa, the Semien of Eastern Africa, and the Kordungalur of South India. I think the Kordungalur are from Kerala, by the way. Oh. Uh, but so there's all, he, his point is there were all these political, um, what do you call them? States, polities that were Jewish and proselytizing and they went out and, and converted people. And that's why that's where most of the Judaism, just like any other religion comes from. So the story he's like, you have to take the story that they were all in Palestine and scattered. And these are all their descendants. You have to take that as a religious origin story and not as a historical, not as a matter of historical fact. And Nathan Rabkin, um, 
he takes that up too. Nathan Rabkin wrote a book. He's a rabbi, I think. He took he wrote a book called What is Modern Israel? And uh, he takes that up, like the way that Judaism interprets texts and the religious, the way you read texts in the Jewish tradition. Um, and, and when you do that, uh, from that religious perspective, Jerusalem means something different. Like all of these things, they're not, it's not like about um, real estate or geography. It's about like, you know, spiritual advancement and enlightenment. And oh, then yeah. the same way the English are constantly referring to, you know, the new Jerusalem in this green and pleasant land. And it's glad that you meant, I'm glad that you, <laughs> it's funny you mentioned England because Rabkin in his glossary, he says, he has this quote, he says, Zionism, ideology of Protestant Christian origin that propounds the assembly of the Jews in Palestine. At the end of the 19th century, a group of activists of Jewish origin in Central Europe established the Zionist political movement that led to the proclamation of the state of Israel in 1948. So he, he goes into the fact that Zionism, the idea that the Jews should all go to Palestine, is fundamentally, uh, as, and in modern times, a Protestant uh, idea, not doesn't so for example he he and we have some examples in 1621 there appeared a book entitled the world's great restoration or calling of the jews and with them of all nations and kingdoms of the earth to the faith of christ (laughs) Uh, and the book was pronounced seditious by king james the first and quickly forbidden there's a calvinist with a jewish background isaac la perriere who wrote a book du rappel des juifs also about the return to the importance of the jewish return to palestine for facilitating the second coming of jesus so that's the christian zionist belief right that it it's only when the jews come to palestine that they'll um okay either converted or uh or you know burn in hell or whatever but um the but point it's a is, prerequisite. It's a prerequisite. Yeah, it's one of the things yeah. that has to happen. Um, there are two Christian Zionists, uh, Johanna and Ebenezer Cartwright, in 1649, and they petition um, Thomas Fairfax of the Council of War, um, and their whole thing is they want the Jews back because uh, England expelled the Jews. Everybody's like, everybody thinks the Span the Spanish kingdoms expelled the jews in 1492 right Mm. but england expelled the jews before that they expelled them in the 1200s what's that a couple times yeah (laughs) and so they're only they only come back uh the jews are only allowed to come back in 1655 56 part of it is due to this petition um johanna and ebenezer cartwright make this petition and they want jews to come to england as a stepping stone to Palestine. So the petition reads, This nation of England, with the inhabitants of the Netherlands, shall transport Israel's sons and daughters in their ships to the land promised to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for an everlasting inheritance. So, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> sounds a little sinister. <laughs> but, um, and then there's another... So, and then Shlomo Sand gets back to the idea of, like, how Jewish... Um, Again, like the way Jews read, um, the Jewish tradition reads and, and understands uh, texts and, and, and histor- history. And, you know, I think he's a little unfair because he basically says, you know, the first history of the Jews is not written by Jews, uh, you know, in modern times because like 
Joseph Josephus is right wrote a history of Jews and he's a Romanized you know, Jew, yeah, yeah, he's a Romanized Jew from two thousand years ago. But he's like you know fifteen sixteen hundred years past, and then there's that's the next one, and the next one is this Huguenot uh, Protestant theologian um, who wrote a history of the Jews since Josephus, <laughs> a history of the Jews from Jesus Christ to the present time, being a supplement and continuation of the history of Josephus. Now he's trying to say. Um, Shlomo Sand is trying to say that Protestants are the ones who have traditionally defined the conversation. On the other hand, like you don't see a lot of any kind of European historiography in medieval times, right? Like the 16, 1700s is when you start seeing histories being written. I think you might know otherwise, but that's yeah, there are chronicles before that. Yeah, but but you know, but not of. You're not you're not going subjects. into you're not going into the uh, extensive history section at Barnes and Nobles, <laughs> Barnes and Noble in 1500 or anything. Uh, uh, so then 1820 is the next one. Isaac Marcus Jost writes a history of the Israelites from the time of the Maccabees to our time, and uh, Shlomo Sand notes that he skipped over the um, biblical period. Another another debate between a Protestant. Uh, pastor and a and a rabbi. Dave, David Levy is the rabbi, and the the pastor is Joseph Priestley. And Priestley argues uh, in a debate with Levy. This is in the 1700s that the Jews have to go to Palestine, and the rabbi says no. The Jews have to accomplish their mission in the countries of their residence. Next oh. up, what's that? Oh, yeah, what, yeah. What so, is that mission? The mission Do, of wait. The, the Messiah? Yeah, like the mission of, of being a good Jew, I guess. Like the you know, the same the same idea of like being a good Christian or being a good Muslim. It's like you're your you know, uh, to to do a to fulfill your religious obligations in this life is mm. not you don't have to go to Palestine to do it. That's what what Ravkin Ravkin and Sand are saying the mainstream Jewish position until the nineteenth century and for the most part until the 20th century was this is not you know this is not a requirement of of our religion to go to palestine to physically right. go to palestine then there's this john nelson darby he's a dis, he launches a movement called dispensationalism he's a he's an american uh pastor of some kind uh he's in plymouth i guess plymouth is massachusetts and he takes up this literal reading of the Bible. And again, it's this concept that if Israel belongs to the Jews, then the second coming of Christ can happen. So um, then there's Fichte, uh, who's a philosopher, I think. German, uh, the, yeah. the Holy Land should be conquered and all of them dispatched to it. Apparently, Napoleon invited Jews to settle in the Holy Land. Yeah. He had, he had the whole strategic master plan. Yeah. And then there's Lord Shaftesbury, another Christian Zionist who encourages the opening of the uh, British consulate in Jerusalem in 1838. Um, there's in the Times of London, the Colonial Times of London, uh, publishes a memorandum in 1841 to the Protestant monarchs of Europe calling for the return of Jews to Pal Palestine. Uh, Palmerston likes this idea, and he suggests it to Queen Victoria in 1845. Really? Yeah. Then there's Lawrence Oliphant. He's another big one. Um, he writes a book in 1880 called The Land of Gilead with Excursions in Lebanon. I guess this is like one of these travelogues. 
Um, and he figures, you know, he says this, we should do with the Arabs. Uh, the same system might be pursued, which we have adopted with success in Canada with our North American tribes who are confined to their reserves and live peaceably upon them in the midst of the settled agricultural population. Huh. So. <laughs> so by 1880, you have Protestant English imperialists who are proposing that Palestine be reorganized on the Canada model. <laughs> wow. Uh, and then uh, there's another character, William Heckler, H-E-C-H-L-E-R, who was a real pro Protestant uh, Christian Zionist. And he actually befriended Herzl. So there are some people who, like Shlomo Sand, I think, argues that Herzl's um, inspiration was this Protestant visionary, William Heckler. Um, yeah. That's fascinating. I know. I know. Wow. It's a totally different angle on the whole, the whole thing. Well, I guess a few Jews caught on to the idea. Yeah. But a very few, right? A the majority seems to have been uh, more in line with Rabbi Levi that, you know, wherever we are is perfectly good. And there are uh, Jews making their way. I, I picked up the case of uh, Lionel de Rothschild. This is the uh, scion of a, of a banking family in England who he raised large sums for the British government, particularly in the Crimean War and uh, for famine relief during the, uh, the Irish famine. And he was a co-founder of the British Relief Association in 1847. So he's hobnobbing with aristocrats. He's hand in glove with the government. Uh, he also raised uh, four million pounds to finance the British government's purchase of the Suez Canal shares from Egypt. So extremely well connected. And in 1847, he was elected to the British House of Commons as one of four uh, members of Parliament for the City of London, which is astonishing. Now, at that point, Jews are barred from sitting in the House of Commons. They have to take a Christian oath. But to get around that little technical problem, the Prime Minister, uh, Russell, introduced a bill, the Jewish Disabilities Bill, curious name, uh, just to, you know, remove the problem with the oath. So it took a year, but he got it passed through the House of Commons, and it went to the House of Lords, where it was rejected twice. And then in 1849, Rothschild had been uh, rejected again by the uh, House of Lords, so he resigned his, his seat and ran again, and he won in a by-election. So this guy's been elected twice over. So in 1850, he went into the House of Commons to take his seat, but he wouldn't swear on a Christian Bible. He wanted to use a Hebrew text. And they allowed him to do this, which I find astonishing again. But he skipped the words, upon the true faith of a Christian, from the oath. And when he did that, they, they made him leave. So Russell tried again a new Jewish disabilities bill, again defeated in the House of Lords. And in 1852, Rothschild was re-elected. And the government again tried to get him in the House, passing this, you know, uh, basically exemption bill. 
It wasn't until 1858 that the House of Lords finally agreed that each house, the Commons and the Lords, could decide their own oath. So, 26th of July, 1858, Rothschild took the oath with his head covered, and instead of the ordinary form of the oath upon the true faith of a Christian, he said, so help me Jehovah. And then he sat down as the first Jewish member of Parliament. So if you are uh, Jewish, and I would say almost anywhere in Western Europe, this is a tremendous step forward. Mm-hmm. Like, why go to Palestine? We're doing pretty darn well here. And it's a it's a step forward, but it's also quite a quite a struggle to get there. You know, for um, when you think of the self image of of England, right? As well, very okay, but think and... of how long it took for Catholics. So yeah, this is like right. the fast track for <laughs> they they really uh, yeah. uh, grease the rails for Rothschild to get him in there. Um, yeah, and it's interesting too that it's eighteen fifties. 1858 mm-hmm. because you know like we've been talking about post US civil war um is when you get like more and more of the science the so-called scientific racism and like we we did those episodes about victorianism and the rewriting of all these scientific fields to and and academic fields to insert make sure that racism is everywhere there like that scientific racism the hierarchy of races and that's where um anti-semitism becomes part of this whole intellectual system of racism which is why you know in a way it's it's almost like downhill a little bit from from the 1858 uh you know as far as like what the intellectual class believes about you know about jews and that's why like you start to see anti-Semitic leagues. Um, so anti-Semitism, it's not just like something that's in your heart, right? Historically, they had organized organizations called anti-Semitic. We're the anti-Semitic. Hi, we're the anti-Semitic league. Hi, uh, I'm an anti-Semite, you know, like that was yeah. their, uh, that was how they were. And so 1879, they have one. Um, France, uh, apparently, according to this other source wise board that I'll tell you more about uh, basically says that it took off around the same time in France, the early 18, I mean the late 1870s. Um, but in France, apparently it fizzled a little bit until the Dreyfus affair, which we'll talk about in a few Yeah, we'll episode. get to that one. Just wanted to mention as well as the Rothschild case, don't forget Disraeli. Disraeli, of course. Yeah. yeah but he did so, convert, right? Yeah. Um, okay. But, he converted, but but they believed everybody believed uh he wasn't a sincere conversion. <laughs> yeah, plus he made up some stories about the uh honored lineage of his family. But uh I think there were many who didn't like him because he had been a, a novelist as well as a politician, which Oh yeah, we quoted from some of his work, didn't we? <laughs> oh yeah, and boy Typical convert, eh? He joined the, uh, he jumped on the bandwagon and joined the racist crew. Yeah. Uh, but really, the worst anti Semitism of this era, uh, and it's like deadly, is the Russian Empire. So, yeah. So, we're going back here a little bit of a, of a review. Uh, if you might remember from earlier episodes, the Russians lost in the Crimean War, and, and their defeat was humiliating because of how much weakness and incompetence it it revealed in the Russian Empire. The performance of Russian troops was 
largely uninspired and and Russian generals and, and leaders compared that to the almost suicidal bravery of the British and the French who, you know, went into crazy charges like, you know, the Light Brigade singing. And the Russians thought, you know, why can't we have that? And then given the incompetence of British and French generals, you know, the Russians have to ask themselves, how did we lose to these guys? Um, Ultra-conservative Tsar Nicholas I died in 1855, and was succeeded by Alexander II. So Alexander put an end to the war, but he certainly saw enough to realize that in order to compete with Britain and France, uh, militarily for sure, that's the number one priority, but in other fields also, we have to modernize. And he took a, you know, if you can't beat them, join them approach. We're going to try a little bit of this you know, liberalism and nationalism stuff. You know, rather than having our, our serfs conscripted into the army and then driven to the battlefields, you know, with apathetic resignation, we want enthusiastic soldiers. So we're going to try a few things. That, that included judicial reforms, the abolition of corporal punishment, uh, promotion of education, local self-government, and in 1861, the big one, the abolition of serfdom. So Russia actually abolished slavery before the U.S. did. Unfortunately, Alexander's enthusiasm for reform cooled. Uh, first of all, there was an assassination attempt that he seems to have taken personally. And then the Polish uprising of 1863, which he definitely took personally. I think he had been uh, king of Poland, one of his titles. So he, he took a personal interest in this case. The crackdown was extremely harsh. Uh, 18,000 sent to Siberia, 70,000 imprisoned. The reprisals went on for a, over a decade, including the imposition of Russian language in education. So Alexander abandoned these liberal ideas and turned reactionary. It's too late, to, you know, to uh, put the genie back in the bottle, so serfdom remains abolished. But they returned to a much more traditional curriculum. Uh, governor generals were established with powers to prosecute in military courts. Political offenders could be exiled, internal exile or external. And I think the internal was worse because that usually meant Siberia or somewhere around there. They had show trials. The intention was to uh, deter others from revolutionary activity. Uh, and they also suppressed separatist groups. And Alexander addressed his people with these words, gentlemen, let us have no dreams. <laughs> Sounds like Biden. <laughs> So martial law in Lithuania was introduced in 1863 and lasted for 40 years. Uh, native languages were completely banned from printed texts, particularly Lithuanian and Ukrainian. So, so this is like trying to suppress nationalism, basically. It's a ra russification. Or and, and radicalism, because many of the political criminals were Russians. Right, and they're Russian were... anarchists, right? The yes. an this is, anarchism is big, and anarchism has these doctrines. We've talked about this a little bit. This is yep. why this is why this is a review. But like, anarchists had this belief that 
if you do, um, you know, this is when they use the word terrorism. Like mm-hmm. if you do bombings and they called the anarchists called it propaganda by the deed. So yes. you do bombings and assassinations and that's like, it wakes people up. Like it wakes people up better than some pamphleteering or. Well, you know, yeah, petition isn't going to work in Russia. Yeah. And so and a but, demonstration you know, is just, you know, an excuse for them to open fire on you. So. Yeah. So yeah. So terrorism, it isn't, and um, yeah, and, and then they also, it's hard to organize in this environment. So anarchists yes. adapt this like spontaneity. Everything is spontaneous. We 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 try to like spontaneous uprisings happen all the time, and that's what we. And, and very for. small groups of anarchists and nihilists decide to go straight to the top and try assassinating the czar. Uh, other assassination attempts: 1866, 1879, uh, I think twice in 1880 and 1881 and we covered them before i mean it's almost humorous how many times they tried to kill him and the czar's precautions i think there was one he was out walking in his favorite you know garden or park and uh, a radical student came at him with a pistol and he he saw the guy coming so he started to run and you have the czar running in a zigzag pattern as this student shoots at him and misses uh they blew up a dining room that he was supposed to be in but he was late, so they killed 30 of the wrong people. They tried to blow up his train and, and mess that up. Uh, they also tried to bomb his carriage. So uh, was it Bismarck gave him a gift of an armored carriage so that he could ride around in, in safety? And in 1881, uh, an, an anarchist group, uh, I think they were called the People's Will, they succeeded in throwing a bomb that landed under his armored carriage, blew up and injured or killed some of the horses. So the people inside got out to look at the damage, which is when the second bomber (laughs) threw his bomb and uh, blew them up. So uh, Alexander II assassinated in 1881, and his son, Alexander III, actually witnessed his father's death. you can guess that he was not the most liberal of persuasion. So he became an, another arch conservative and cracked down on these terrorists, on dissent, on protest. So he used the secret police, the Okhrana, to arrest protesters, to uproot suspected rebel groups. They did the uh, British trick of sending in, you know, uh, agent provocateur, you know, undercover guys to. You know, even start one of these groups and see who joins so that we can arrest them. Uh, but the assassination, the government also sought to uh, to use it. And, and they did by blaming it on the Jews. Oh. Now, the Jews already weren't popular, but this certainly didn't help. So they passed uh, anti-Semitic legislation known as the May Laws, they were meant to be temporary, um, and they lasted decades. Oh, yeah, just to, to make the point, the bombers who killed uh, the Tsar, one of them was Russian and Orthodox, and the second was a Polish nationalist. So, like, no Jews in, in that attempt, but that doesn't matter. Yeah, they, they, they said there was a bigger conspiracy, and there, right. were, there was some Jewish member that they arrested, and, and so... Um, Wiseboard again, he says the anti-Semitism has become the quasi-official policy of the state, of the Russian state. Oh, that's um, a good line. A- after 1881. 
So the first pogrom was uh, April 27th, 1881 in Elizabethgrad. Um, and there were a hundred and according to Weisbrot's count, Weisbord's count, uh, there were 160 more over the next two years. So that's like, what is that? Every couple, every three, four days, there's a pogrom basically. Wow. Um, and, and Weisbord says, uh, they'd taken place before, but never in history had they recurred with such frequency and fury and with so little public indignation. Mm. So. Yeah, the the May laws are are really quite interesting. At first, it just looks like some uh, connected to land ownership, so Jews could not settle outside of towns unless it was in an existing Jewish agricultural colony. Uh, no mortgages or deeds to property could be sold to Jews, and they were forbidden to transact business on Sundays. So the first part of this is connected to the area known as the Pale. So during Catherine the Great's uh, rule, Russia acquired tons of Polish and Lithuanian territory, and they also acquired rule over significant Jewish population there, millions. And the Jews were restricted to that area, which was known as the Pale. Just by coincidence, that's, that was the English-ruled chunk of Ireland around Dublin, also called the Pale. Yeah, and so you've probably heard the term that's going beyond the pale for right. something that's like I'm not allowed, right? Right. So in Russia, the pale of settlement, Jews were only allowed to live there, and that meant that the May laws expelled the Jews from Moscow and St. Petersburg. Uh, quite a few, I, I think the number was as high as 20,000 who were deported, except, of course, for the few exceptions who were deemed useful. Uh, later on, additions to the May laws. They put a quota on the number of Jews admitted to high school and university. Uh, the proportion of Jewish doctors working in the army was not allowed to exceed 5%. Any Jew who wished to become a barrister needed the express written consent of the Minister of Justice. Jews were not allowed to sell alcohol. And in 1893, uh, a very familiar law, well, at least it, we, we're going to see it again. Uh, the law concerning names, criminal punishment for Jews who tried to adopt Christian names. I read a defense of the May laws from Solzhenitsyn. Gulag Archipelago, our fa your favorite anti-communist, everybody's favorite anti-communist writer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So according to Solzhenitsyn, the May laws were about social stability. Oh, not not racism and in fact they were measures to protect the jews rather than oppress them oh he, no. he argues that the government couldn't protect small scattered villages from pogroms so they have to be concentrated yeah oh so these laws as i said were supposed to be temporary but lasted 40 years and this is the push factor. If you're looking for why people would want to emigrate from Russia, particularly Jews, well, here's a very good reason. All of these uh, government-initiated discriminatory measures, which just you know make the pogroms worse. So apparently between 1881 and 1920, something like 2 million Jews left Russia. Many of them, or most of them, 
settled in the United States or Argentina, and a small number went to Palestine. Yeah, very small. Uh, you know, and they didn't. Most of them didn't want to go. Most of them wanted <laughs> to go to Europe again, right? Western Europe is, and you know, it's crazy to think about it in light of what happened with World War II and the Holocaust. But what Germany was like the refuge, right? Germany's like where Jews go to be safe for the most mm -hmm. part from what's going on in Russia. I mean, it's, yeah. So just about Solzhenitsyn, I do think it's, you know, I do think it's all too common that when you look at like the most vehement anti-communists, you find that they're, you know, basically anti-Semites. <laughs> um, uh, it's, it's a pattern I think that'll come up in our, when we talk about the 20th century. Um, so, uh, Oh yeah, so you were you were. Oh, just the <clears throat> the number of pogroms gets ridiculous, like yeah. <laughs> hundreds, hundreds. So a pogrom is basically like a, a mob goes and burns Jewish businesses and houses down and kills people they find. That's the idea of a pogrom. Uh, looting, yeah, burning synagogues, uh, mm -hmm. burning dwellings breaking into said dwellings, uh, yeah, beating, murder, yeah. and and none of it punished. Right. So the police are just... Standing by or standing helping by. out. Right. Uh, there's a big one. So this is where um, the pogroms are getting bad, and we're, I'm going to tell you more about Theodore Herzl, but Herzl and... Zionists and I mean anybody who is concerned with with the fate of you know the J Jewish people is watching this with great horror um, and Herzl writes you know uh, an interesting thing because he he wants by this by you know by 1898 there's a big pogrom in in Poland the Zionist movement exists as I'll tell you more 1896 it's founded and Herzl uh, they want Herzl wants Palestine so but Herzl says the poor masses need immediate help and Turkey is not yet so desperate as to accede to our wishes perhaps we can demand Cyprus from England and even keep an eye on South Africa or America until Turkey is dissolved so it's interesting that um, you know Russia is doing these things. Uh, and the solution is seen outside of Russia for the Zionists. And it's also like Herzl takes for granted that Turkey is going to be the Ottoman Empire is going to be carved up uh, like mm -hmm. Africa is being carved up. And like they're planning 1898, they're also planning to do the same thing to China. I guess India's long since not carved up, I suppose. India's just been taken by uh, the British a year, hundred years before that. So. Um, Big pogroms in Romania starting in 1900. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and I forgot to mention, this is also the era of the reprinting of the forgery, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Oh, the Protocols is older than this? Uh, 18... There's an original one, like 1870-something. Okay, yeah. But the the popular forgery i think was 1905 19 right 19 yeah which is like right in this era mm -hmm. so there was a pogrom in 1903 in kishinev 49 killed hundreds wounded 700 homes destroyed 600 businesses pillaged uh same year pogroms in gomel in belarus uh smela feodosia melitopol in ukraine and 
you know, the mutilation of the wounded and just extreme savage craziness. So the the Kishinev pogrom was a really, really big one uh, for everybody, you know, for the, for the Jew, for the Zionists and, you know, not Zionist uh, Jewish majority. Cause there's also like, this is where the, you know, you mentioned the protocols of the elders of Zion, but there's also this thing called the blood libel. So the blood libel, it comes from this time. Uh, and the blood libel is basically the Jews kill children for some ritual or whatever, Passover bread, whatever it is. But the, but the blood libel, you'll still hear the term blood libel. Um, and it refers basically to this incident where, you know, it, to, to the stories that they told about the Jews to try to whip people up into taking these actions during these pogroms is yeah uh, I, I mean the blood libel you can you can read about it in in uh, english and french pogroms in the 12th century mm-hmm. like this this idiocy has been going on for hundreds of years yeah. and even though they're you know they're disproved i think the protocols were uh proved to be forgeries in the New York Times, in uh, in France, and you know, and in even in Germany, well, eventually they were restored. But yeah. you get the idea. It does. It's, it doesn't seem to matter if you disprove these idiocies. People cling to them anyway, and there's always somebody new willing to come up and promote them. Mm-hmm. Sounds a little bit like our own time. Yeah, that's, uh, uh, dis- disinformation is not an easy one. No. Yeah. Uh, Another pogrom in Zhitomir, 29 killed. Uh, Kiev, in October of 1905, about 100 Jews were massacred. So apparently between 1903 and 1906, in Ukraine and Bessarabia alone, Bessarabia is the province on the border of Romania, they recorded about 660 pogroms. Uh, Uh More in Belarus, which were carried out with the Russian government's complicit assistance wow. and they didn't keep a record of anti-Jewish pogroms in Poland. I, yeah. I don't believe that means that there were none. It, I just think they didn't count them. Right. And about this time, uh, the Jewish labor Bund began organizing armed self-defense units so that they could shoot back. And yeah. uh, imagine the pogroms subsided for a few years. Yeah, so, but, so the Bund, that's an interesting one because it's like, so this is also the time of the socialists. So there's like all these things that are converging, right? Socialism, mm-hmm. nationalism, anti-scientific racism and colonialism. And like the, the labor Bund uh, is like this organized expression of socialism, which is uh, very, you know, very effective. Um, but like, it's it's funny because anti-Semites use that too, right? So they they talk about how Jews are all a bunch of communists, and they're all a bunch of so eventually they're and they're all a bunch of socialists, and they're trying to, you know, they're trying to overthrow the system. And on the other hand, they also say Jews are capitalists, and they're trying to take all your money. So yeah. you really, socialists. they really can't win. Yeah. So I, I found a statistic between 1881 and 1920, there were 1,326 pogroms in Ukraine, taking the lives of between 70 and 250,000 Jews and leaving half a million homeless. And obviously this 
violence is what prompted a wave of Jewish emigration. And as you said, westward for the most part. So it's interesting too, because like um, you imagine it's not just that there's a pogrom every few days. It's also like, imagine the day-to-day terror that you live in. Like, you know, you're just go, trying to go about your business every day. And, you know, these are all people that'll any day now burn your house down <laughs> and yeah. maybe kill you, kill yeah. your children. So it's, wow. Yeah. I mean, you can imagine. Anyway, um, so Herzl, so it's, it's great because the British response to this um, you know, with typical imperial compassion is to figure out how to try to restrict Jewish immigration to Britain. So, or steer them elsewhere, yes. <laughs> so they're just like, wow, they sure want to come west. Uh, we got to figure out how to how to stop this. So they, they're getting ready uh, and a, a series of alien immigration laws. Um, to restrict the immigration of so-called destitute aliens. Who are these destitute aliens? Why are they destitute and aliens? Because um, they're destitute and they're being alienated from their homes in Eastern Europe and they're trying to get to places that are safe like Britain, the US and Canada. They don't want to go to Palestine. They don't want to go to Africa. Um, but Herzl notices this strategically and... Um, and he goes before the Royal Commission on Alien Immigration in 1902, and he says, "You know, look, we, you know, we need land. If you don't want Jews coming to your country in the West, you're going to have to give us some. Maybe you can give us something else." Uh, which takes us now to the col- the whole, col- the many colonization schemes uh, for colonizing specifically East Africa, but elsewhere during the scramble for Africa. So here's a few. Remember uh, when we talked about so-called Yankee imperialism, they had this concept called the filibuster where American, uh, I don't know, guys with guns would go and try to become the king of Nicaragua or whatever, right? Oh, Walker. Yeah. (laughs) Texas is another, you know, Texas became part of the U.S. through that kind of action, right? They just Mm. decided they were going to separate and then they were like actually we'll join the united states um there were a few less successful ventures that preceded the so-called uganda plan um baron hirsch uh in 1891 uh the jewish colonization society were 10 years into pogroms right so baron hirsch another wealthy um, patron uh, buys land in argentina for jewish agricultural colonies um this doesn't amount to that much uh but People often point to this as, look, Jews can uh, do agriculture. Remember, a lot of the laws were restricting, Mm -hmm. right? They were restricting them to cities and so on. So um, there's this whole thing, this whole battle over the stereotype that Jews are urban and cosmopolitan and don't want to go and get their hands dirty working the land. And so the Zionists, uh, you know, really want to refute this. They say, no, we are uh, agricultural because somehow that was you know part of the racist scheme of things right is like mm-hmm. the best people are the are the white free land holding agriculturalists that's like the highest type of human being um there's also thea check this out dave theodore Herzka from vienna 
uh, an economist and journalist, writes a novel called Free Land in 1890. Um, and it's so inspiring that people um, create an international free land society. And Free Land, and then the sequel, 1894, A Visit to Free Land, um, is basically like a socialist. It's like a combination of socialism and America, <laughs> like, uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson. So one description is every inhabitant has an equal inalienable right to the common land and the means of production, which are furnished by the state. But free land will guarantee to everybody the full and entire produce of his own work by the unlimited maintenance of his right of doing what he pleases. So it's going to be totally free, but it's also going to be totally socialist. So it's going to be great. Um, So wait, wait, wait. (laughs) So everybody gets free land. Yeah. And they get the full and entire produce of their work. So no taxes. I guess. And the government provides the means of production. Yeah. With what? How do they get? How do they procure this? I, I, you know, so listen, (laughs) Dr. Julius Wilhelm, he tries to make this happen. So they go to Ken, they go to the British and say, listen, we'll have British subjects, we'll speak English in the colony, give us. Kenya, and we'll make this free land happen, and it'll be under the British flag. So there's a Dr. Julius Wilhelm, a young chemist. He takes 20 other members in military uniforms. Some of them are alcoholic and eccentric, and when they land at Lamu in 1894, their behavior scandalizes the locals, the local (laughs) Muslims. Um, And it's just such a disaster that Wilhelm doesn't get along with them. He, He dissolves the expedition, and then he tries to contact uh, Lord Lugard for a new expedition, but Lugard is not up for it. Harding and then another, the Earl of Kimberley, they all shoot it down. So the community is eventually dissolved. There's another one in 1891-92, a converted Jew named Paul Friedman. He talks to Lord Salisbury and Lord Cromer, and he sets out on the ship Israel, again with 46 men in military uniform, to found Midian Colony. Uh, but Turkey says, no thanks. So that fizzles, 1892. So by 1900, uh, Herzl is talking about all kinds of ideas. El Arish in April, uh, I mean, in Egypt, Cyprus, and he's negotiating with uh, Chamber- Joseph Chamberlain directly, mm-hmm. uh, the, col- the colonial office, uh, colonial officer. So Chamberlain says, look, I like the Zionist idea but I can't do anything against the will of the indigenous population in Cyprus. I also can't offer you El Arish without talking to Lord Cromer, but he says, and Herzl's very encouraged by this, that uh, if Cromer agrees, conditional on Cromer's agreement, um, he will give them a colony in Egypt. He also says, please don't do another Jameson raid. Uh, Herzl's off to see uh, Lansdowne, Lord Lansdowne, who writes to, to Cromer. Um, so Cromer says, let's send a commission and study the Sinai. They send uh, a South African engineer and Zionist, Leopold Kessler. Uh, he leads the commission and they meet up with Herzl in 1903. Uh, and they basically tell him it's not going to happen. There's not enough water and your colony needs five times as much water as we'll be able to get. Um, so that's no to Egypt. Um, there's also like another colony called the Duhobors. Have you heard of this? Dave? Yeah. In Canada. 
yes. Western Canada, but they have a lot of trouble. They have a Messiah it's a, it's a show Russian up. Religious uh, sect group. Yeah, yeah, and so it it becomes they they create all kind. There's all kinds of problems between them and and the Canadian, uh, you know, the imperial authorities in Canada. So they're, they they become a kind of a cautionary tale for like against the Zionist. Uh, okay, I think they're pacifists as well as yeah. messianic. Um, and then there's a guy named Jacques Lebaudy, who's a sugar baron, a French sugar baron, who shows up in Western Sahara and declares himself emperor of the Sahara. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> there's another one named Sir William Wilcox, who's got an irrig- irrigation scheme to colonize ancient Chaldea. Is that Iraq? That's in, that's in Iraq. Iraq, yeah. Um, Herzl writes to one of his agents, Leopold Greenberg, and he says, yeah, I know Wilcox and his scheme perfectly. There's nothing for us there. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mozambique. Herzl goes after Mozambique oh. in May 1903. He says, I will try to get this inactive land for a chartered company from the Portuguese government by promising to meet the deficit and pay the tribute later. Uh, he proposes this to Count Parati, the Portuguese ambassador in Vienna, who says he'll pass that up. But there's no reply. He also writes to Philipson, Franz Philipson, the Brussels branch of the Jewish colonization, to see if King Leopold would be up for a Jewish colony in Congo. But Philipson doesn't even bother to take it to Leopold. He's like, that's not going to happen. Too tropical. So, Theodore Herzl. I've kind of put the cart before the horse because I wanted to tell you about the colonization schemes, but it's time to tell you about the founder of Zionism, Theodore Herzl. Uh, he's from Vienna. He's a he's a writer. He's a fairly accomplished writer of plays, uh, columns, books, uh, essays. Um, and I've got a source, uh, a U of T prof, Jack Kornberg, uh, University of Toronto. Sorry, I know some of you think U of T is University of Texas, but U of T for <laughs> us is University of Toronto. Um, and there's a paper I read called Theodore Herzl, A Reevaluation in the Journal of modern history so and then there's Wiseboard. Wiseboard points this out like before herzl as late as 1879 and Wiseboard is a zionist he's a very pro-israel writer writing in 1968 he says as late as 1879 the concept of the restoration of palestine was still an idle fancy peculiar to east europe's jewish ghettos And then he says something very typically disdainful of the way that Zionists talk about Jews that are not Zionists. He says its expression uh, of the the Zionist idea was a source of scorn and embarrassment for the vast majority of half-emancipated, semi-enlightened Western Jewry. So it tells you a little bit of what he thinks about Jews who are not Zionists, right? Yeah. So, but anti-Semitism is... You know, it's we talked about the pogroms, but there's also a lot of intellectual anti-Semitism. Um, Heinrich, Heinrich Treitschke publishes, he's a liberal politician. He publishes an anti-Semitic article petitioning for the exclusion of Jews. There's a pogrom in Neustetten in July 1881, in, which is in Germany. There's Eugen During. Uh, in 1881, he writes the famous book, The Jewish Problem, as a problem of race, morals, and culture. Uh, so Herzl says this was a wake-up call for him. He writes, uh, if During, who unites so much undeniable intelligence with so much universi- universality of knowledge, can write like this, what are we to expect from the ignorant masses? 
it's actually ironic because I suspect the educated classes were more anti-Semitic than the, the ignorant masses. Um, then uh, a, a Jewish writer, um, Leo Pinsker, in 1882, writes a pamphlet called Auto-Emancipation. So this is another example of like, they're not, he's not Zionist, but he's, he wasn't Zionist for the longest time, but he kind of despairs and becomes more of a Zionist as the pogroms increase uh, and the laws restrict Jews from land, right? So he says, we need nothing but a large piece of land for our poor brothers, a piece of land which shall remain our property from which no foreign master can expel us. He also doesn't care where. Mm. By 1885, the Russian Zionists have a peak membership of 14,000 members. Um, they're trying to organize, though, underground. We've said it's not a great way place to organize political movements in Russia. Uh, so they're trying to buy small plots of land. Uh, Weisberg says they're trying to buy and smuggle their way into Palestine, but they know that Turkey can expel them at any time. So Russian Zionism heads in this kind of philanthropic, cultural direction, right? So Herzl's innovation is to say, no, what matters is political power, Um there's a there's a book there's a really conspiracy oriented book 1200 pages two volumes called La France Juive Jewish France by Edward Drummond uh, and Wiseboard says the impact of this book cannot be exaggerated it ushered in a new era in French anti-Semitism which did not end until Dreyfus was exonerated by a court in 1906. So this book, La France Juive, argues that France is under the control of a Jewish conspiracy. It cites Gobineau's race theories and praises the pogroms. Oh, great. Herzl credits uh, Zionism, credits Drummond for for Zionism. He says, you know, my thinking on the Jewish question was freed up by by Drummond's yeah. uh, anti-Semitism. Herzl calls it the Jewish question. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Everybody called it that. Whatever, whatever your particular answer is, it, everybody called it the Jewish question. That wasn't. Yeah, that was, you know, in the anti-Semitic context of the time. Um, so apparently people. So uh, Kornberg says, you know, lots of people believe Herzl converted to Zionism during the Dreyfus t trial, but he didn't. He converted after he mm. believed Dreyfus was guilty. And he, the first time he said he always believed in Dreyfus's innocence was in 1899, five years after uh, it became public knowledge that it was all a setup. Sorry, we're referring to something without telling the story of it. But we will rest assured. We will tell the Dreyfus affair. Um, well, the, the, the basic the basic uh, parameter is is that Dreyfus was an army officer who was accused of spying on behalf of Germany. He's he was a put French on trial officer. and convicted of being a spy, and he was sent to Devil's Island in uh, French Guiana. Then a whole movement to exonerate him arises, and yeah, but then there's ultimately. also the huge movement saying, you know, all the Jews have to be purged from the army, yeah. from the government. We have to clean France, and yeah, yeah. So um, in 1891, though, uh, Herzl goes to Paris as a parliamentary correspondent uh, for, I guess, a newspaper in Vienna. Um, he's a bit scandalized by anti-Semitism over the Panama Canal Company. Um, but there's some reassuring uh, news in France because the anti-Semitic political parties do really badly in 1890 and 1894. 
So again, like, uh, it's a mixed, you know, there's anti-Semitism is not, is always present in the West, but it's not all that popular in, in the West, right? Compared to Russia at this time or so again, uh, in 1894, as a kind of a proof of how Herzl has not yet uh, embraced Zionism, uh, not only has he not embraced Zionism, he's also adopted a fair amount of anti-Semitism, Kornberg argues. So he says, you know, 1894, there's a play called The New Ghetto, which, uh, which Kornberg calls a storeroom of anti-Semitic stereotypes. This uh, is basic- written by Herzl? So it's written by Herzl, yeah. Wow. So he has a character who's trying to, impl- you know, trying to emancipate himself, but he's he kind of implies that Jews are to blame for their own situation. His friend Arthur Schnitzler uh, writes him a letter scolding him. He says there's a lack of strong Jews throughout the play. Um, Herzl writes in his diary when he goes to Paris, he goes to a synagogue in Paris, and he writes that he's repulsed by the people, the congregation's bold, misshapen noses, furtive and cunning eyes. So he's, you know, he's obviously like seeing, he's exposed to so much anti-Semitism that he's absorbed a little bit of it himself, I suppose, which happens to the best of us. He attends the trial of the anarchist terrorist Rava Shol, and he also attends socialist mass meetings. And he's kind of interested in these movements and how they work and how they organize. He praises the anarchist for the voluptuousness of the grand idea and of martyrdom. Uh, And he's intrigued by the debate between the idea of like individualist liberalism and mass politics. Um, 1895, Gustave Le Bon writes about the crowd, right? The madness of crowds. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's this whole debate about like how to use mass politics. Can we use it? Should we, afraid of it um you know socialists have their idea about it um, herzl wants to be a pan-germanist he's into the idea of pan-germanism but pan-germanism gets a little too anti-semitic and he has to quit um he's not the last one to quit he there are others who hang on even after he leaves then his famous novel um follows uh follows the other the uh, you know i mentioned hertzka but free um herzl writes alt newland so hertzka wrote freeland herzl wrote alt newland which is old new land um you know the name tel aviv is there it's set in a future where there's a jewish basically outpost in palestine um it's secular it's Mm non-sectarian uh he says jews muslims and christians mix intimately and harmoniously for the new society belongs to all men um but kornberg says herzl's universalism was hardly neutral it was a euphemism for assimilation into european culture old new land has no army it has a planned economy and uh herzl says zionism can be a model for negro self-determination um I tried reading it. It's on archive.org, but I couldn't really get into it, even for the sake of research. Mm. These you, these 19th century utopian novels are tough, tough reads. Um, Freeland, Looking Backward by Bellamy, uh, Arrowhan or Nowhere, yeah, which fun, is Nowhere yeah. Backwards by I Butler. I that one, and it was about yeah. as successful. They're just... They're, they have no characters, right? They have no drama. They're just uh, just these descriptions of the author's economic vision. So it's, it's just hard to read. Um, but it was inspiring to a lot of people, apparently. Um, 
And he saw this old new land as a place where Jews could become uh, European, like truly European. So according to Kornberg, Herzl has a certain loathing about Jewish life because he's, um, you know, he's a Europe, you know, he's raised in that European context. So the, he's, Kornberg says, you know, the intellectualism of Jewish life, the Hasidic uh, culture, Kabbalah, these are all a closed book to him because his image of the Jews was of, of a being wholly shaped by persecution. So Kornberg contrasts him with another, uh, found, you know, per, big figure from the Zionist movement, Ahad Ha'am, who they say is the architect of modern Hebrew language and cultural revival, whereas Herzl is all about just power single-minded about power through the connection with British empires, especially the British. Um, whereas before Herzl, it's all about like raising money to do philanthropic kinds mm-hmm. of colonization. Herzl understood that national goals must be openly proclaimed, whatever the short range costs, but he's not a Garibaldi. He's not going to organize the armed struggle. He's not that, that that's just not, he's not that guy, you know, like remember how, Marty, he's the writer guy. He's not the practical fighting right. guy. Um, but his goal was all along to gain a legal charter from an imperial power. And in 1896, he publishes the famous The Jewish State. Right. I wonder if part of his um, you know, rejection of the religious side uh, is because so many of the religious Jews didn't like Zionism. Yeah, they're anti-Zionist. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's certainly a very secular, uh, worldly flavor to Zionism. Uh, Herzl also published uh, Die Welt, The World, uh, a weekly magazine based in Vienna, and that became the main voice of uh, the Zionist movement. And I found 1902, the editor was Martin Buber. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's... uh, in terms of lineage, he's descended from one of the most famous Jewish rabbis of, of all time, uh, one of the great teachers, but he's also directly related to Karl Marx. Wow. So Buber became editor of Die Welt, and he disagreed with Herzl on, on many issues. Buber wanted an exemplary state, a role model for the world. And he seems to have convinced himself that this could only come about if it was religious, like a Jewish state, not simply a state for Jews. But he also advanced the idea of a binational Jewish Arab state. He said Which that Jew- is basically what Chomsky was in favor of in the 1970s. Yeah, right. He said the Jewish people should proclaim its desire to live in peace and brotherhood with the Arab people and to develop the common homeland into a republic in which both peoples will have the possibility of free development. I mean, that that is not Herzl's position. No, no. And it's still we're going to move into your, you know, your homeland and, you know, take over half of it. But but we'll share it freely with you and help you develop it. you know, Buber does have his flaws. He was still enough of a German nationalist to be quite happy when World War One started to support Germany's great civilizing mission in the East. But that's so interesting. 
because yeah, like I guess I guess Germany could point at at this point of history, Germany can point to the pogroms and say, you know, we're gonna go and and solve that problem. Oh, yeah, the Russians are barbarians. We're gonna yeah. bring civilization to the east. Sure. Yeah. Buber was nominated for the Nobel Prize in Literature ten times, and for the Nobel Peace Prize seven times. Wow! So a pretty influential figure. Um. Right. So that's 1902. That's no, that's really interesting. I didn't, I mean, everything I was reading refers to Boober, but they act like I was supposed to know about Boober, which I didn't. So they're just like, and <laughs> right. even Boober said this. And I'm like, who's Boober? Why did you just say Boober? Like I, I'm supposed to know, but I guess I was supposed to know. Um, so in 1897, uh, the first World Zionist Congress uh, is occurs in Basley. Basley, Switzerland? Switzerland, yeah. Basel? Is it Basel? Basel, Basel okay. So Basel. And the, the proclamation is this. The aim of Zionism is to create for the Jewish people a home in Palestine secured by public law. So it's a home in Palestine. That's the, that's the proclamation of Basel. And Herzl writes in his diary, At Basel, I founded the Jewish state. If I said this aloud today, I would be met by universal laughter. Perhaps in five years, certainly in 50, everyone will know it. The foundation of a state lies in the will of a people for a state. So that's uh, something that pro-Israel people love to quote now, I guess. Um, It's a very famous diary entry. Um, And Wiseboard (laughs) <laughs> no exception. He says, the Zionist movement from this point on was able to lay claim not only to a philosophy, but a political blueprint, an agency for its implementation, and a messiah, perhaps more human in faculties and more secular in outlook that many, than many of the faithful had hoped for, but a messiah to be sure. So, like you said, this is it's simultaneously very secular because it's borderline blasphemous right to call somebody uh a messiah but on the other hand it's uh you know this is this is how this is how herzl is seen i guess by by zionists today too so he negotiates with the russian um in i don't know interior minister or something plev uh to try to get um he's trying to leverage the kishinev pogrom to say look give get intercede with turkey um get them to give us palestine and we'll stop criticizing russia at the zionist congress um (laughs) so there are negotiations he does negotiate with plev but obviously plev doesn't take it all that seriously and the pogroms don't stop so um uh, herzl loves britain and he comes to you know this conclusion he says the english were the first to recognize the necessity of colonial expansion in the modern world therefore the flag of great britain is falling flying across the seas and therefore i believe the zionist idea which is a colonial idea must be understood in england easily and quickly um i find that to be one of the most fascinating <laughs> you know most most <laughs> enlightening quotes about what zionism is uh, Uh, So uh, he's also impressed by the British colonizing Egypt. When he goes to Egypt, he says, the role of the English here is superb. They are cleaning up the Orient. They bring light and air into its dens of filth. They break up old tyrannies and destroy ancient abuses. 
um, he meets he he negotiates extensively with the Turkish Sultan, um, you know, mainly through uh, through one of the pashas. But he has a meeting with the Turkish Sultan. He proposes an annual tribute, um, you know, and they keep negotiating over the tri- how big the tribute will be. Um, and the Sultan is willing to give them land in Mesopotamia, a- aka Iraq, Syria, Anatolia, in Turkey itself, but not Palestine. Palestine's no go for the Turkish Sultan. Um, in 1902, the Russian members of the Zionist executive set up a company to buy land in Palestine. So they they the Russian Zionists want Palestine and Palestine only. Um, Haim Weizmann is one of them, actually, uh, but. Um, Herzl figures he's got to make some big moves if he's going to keep keep the Zionist organization together under his leadership. So now we come to East Africa. (laughs) So we've, we last episode, we talked about how uh, the British extended their control, just, you know, destroyed the various native, um, you know, tribes or, you know, local states, uh, if you, if you want to look at it that way in Uganda and Kenya. Um, And so the railway reaches Nairobi in 1899. And there's this whole discussion about what to do with the Indian workers from colonial India, uh, who, uh, who work the railway and who do the shops and who run the shops and who do various kinds of work for the, for the imperialists here. Um, Charles Elliott, who's the colonial official there, he says, look, the cool, grassy uplands so attractive to the white man were positively distasteful to the Hindu. So we can give the, the hot parts of the country to the Hindu and we can keep the highlands that are cool for the white man. Um, John, Sir John Kirk, who's the British consul general at Zanzibar, doesn't think that's going to fly. Um, he doesn't think it's going to be a white man's country, and he figures the same problem is going to arise as South Africa. He says, every planter will use native labor and certainly could never have white men to work in the fields. Um, so we're back to the labor, labor problem. Mm-hmm. So by 1902, Leopold Greenberg, Herzl's representative, is negotiating with Chamberlain about all these different territories, Arish, Cyprus, East Africa. Herzl wants to get a legal guarantee uh, of some piece of land somewhere for the Jews that he can take to debate at the Sixth Zionist Congress in Basel in 1903. So Joseph Chamberlain visits East Africa, and he thinks that this is very temperate climate. It's good for white settlers. Um, we can divide it into hot areas for Asians and um, temperate uplands for white settlement. Uh Lord Delamere arrives in Mombasa in 1903, and we mentioned he got himself 100,000 acres from the East Africa Company. Um, He says uh, white settlers should come, but they have to come with capital. Uh, The practical farmer with the practical capital and a determination to settle and immediately assist in building up a country proved to be an agricultural paradise and preeminently suitable for British colonization. That's what he wants it's the african standard that says it but it's what it's the one he wants Mm -hmm. um east africa protectorate makes the official offer of land to the zionists in august of 1903 so chamberlain and greenberg are negotiating greenberg says look i want a jewish governor and self-government for the colony 
Chamberlain says, yeah, we can do that. Um, but then he gets busy and Herzl and Greenberg are a little worried because they say like all our hopes are on this guy Chamberlain and he's busy now debating imperial tariff preference. Uh, he's probably going to retire soon. So it's always that problem of like, who's our guy going to be? Um, but one of the things Greenberg says, which is very interesting to, uh, and via, you know, Herzl says via Greenberg to Chamberlain, he says, listen, if you had had a Jewish colony when Al-Urabi was rebelling or the Mahdi in Sudan or the Mad Mullah of Somalia, who they were fighting at this time, then, you know, we could have helped you. So he says, if those times arise again, the times of a new Urabi, Mahdi or Mullah, then you could use a Jewish colony under the Union Jack. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So part of the vision from back then um so yeah there's a question of how much autonomy uh the colony can have the british position is that the government can have a jewish character and a jewish governor as long as it's appointed by the his majesty but a jewish but hearst one of these officials says a jewish mayor elected to each township appears to me to the limit of what is feasible Foreign relations must remain entirely in the hands of the crown. Residence neither confers nor creates British nationality nor qualifies for naturalization. If the promoters want a petty state of their own, something more than townships or municipalities, the scheme would, I think, be open to great objection. Um, the concept that they keep using to say this is a bad idea is imperium in imperio. So like, we're creating a, a little empire within our empire, and right. we can't do that. So Sir Clement says, I think the Jews should live under the same general regulations as other subjects, employ enjoying like them perfect religious freedom. But not British citizenship, because then they might move to England. Yes. <laughs> uh, so Clement Hill finally uh, signs this letter saying we are in favor of a Jewish settlement in East Africa and recommends a commission to study it. So as soon as this starts really getting serious, the white settlers um, in East Africa are not happy. So they start writing editorials, articles in the African Standard, and a lot of it is basically, look, we're not anti-Semitic, but we don't want these Jewish colonists here. Um, Lord Delamere says, you know, we're... We, this is the best land that they want. We're not a charity. We're not here to try to, you know, solve the problems of Eastern Europe. Um, Jews are not agriculturalists. They'll quickly end up in Johannesburg. There's a guy named Cranberry Heath who writes a poem. He says, oh, this is one of our, our civilization series poems now, Dave. <laughs> and it's as awful as any poem you've ever heard. Uh, Have ye none of your own to provide for, no destitute hungry to feed, that ye pose as almsgiver to Europe and succor the Jew at his need. Ye have flooded the land with the Indian, the Greeks ye have established therein. Now ye welcome the awful of Europe, barring close the door to your kin. Um, the Liverpool Mercury says, There are many millions of the British poor living in a state of chronic want. A great imperial scheme of emigration might at least begin at home. Um, and in fact, it's exactly what's happening, right? This is the era that many millions of Europeans are going to the U.S., to Canada, mm -hmm. etc. Um, 
Arnold White writes a column where he says, is it to be Juganda? Dark outlook for Zionist colonies in Eastern Africa. Um, he, he basically constructs this argument where he says the only thing that'll grow is coffee um, that'll make a profit and the finely drawn and intellectual inhabitants of the Russian ghetto are unlikely to be successful coffee planters in Uganda. Um, other reactions, Charles Eliot, who is initially enthusiastic, kind of cools on the idea when he sees these <laughs> anti-Semitic reactions. He says, the Jewish colony would probably be in touch on three sides with a European population who have given decided expression to their objections to the whole scheme. And place the, to place the settlement there would be to reproduce the same conditions and invite the same consequences as we have seen in Western Russia. So he's basically like, we could end up having pogroms against Jews by white people in, in Africa now. And then you remember I told you about the Nandi resistance and how the leader of the Nandi was called, Arab Samoy, uh, was called to a negotiation and then shot down immediately after he was identified. Nice. So the person, who, the person who shot him is this Richard Miners Hagen, who goes on to be a British war hero in World War I, apparently. Um, but he was already against the, he's a Zionist, but he's against the, the colony um, in Africa. He says, in the first place, the Jews' home is in Palestine, not Africa. God knows there will be enough trouble here in 50 years when the natives get educated. So uh, he figures the Turks should give Palestine to the Jews as the Arabs are doing nothing with it. So that's his position. Um, Balfour, by this time lord balfour who we'll hear a little bit more about in connection with this story it's mm. <laughs> prime minister he's he's not he doesn't say anything about the africa offer he's too busy getting the alien the alien bills through uh to prevent uh restrict jewish immigration to britain and when they accuse him of anti-semitism for restricting jewish immigration he says listen we're the only ones who have offered the Jewish race, a great tract of fertile land in one of our possessions. How could we be anti-Semitic? Now, Herzl's plan, you know, you mentioned Buber, who wants to re, uh, who wants to live side by side. Herzl actually identifies what his idea is to do with the natives. He says, we shall try to spirit the penniless population across the border by procuring employment for it in the transit countries while denying it any employment in our own country. Both the process of expropriation and the removal of the poor must be carried out discreetly and circumspectly. By the time the reshaping of world opinion in our favor has been completed, we shall be firmly established in our country. Wow. So that's the plan. Um, but inside the Zionist movement, the, the Africa proposal is so controversial that Herzl almost gets overthrown by the Russian Zionists inside the movement. But they rally to Herzl. Um, Greenberg and Zangwill and a few others argue that it's a stepping stone. We still want Palestine, but we need um, we need to do something now for our people. Um, but of course, the only thing you can do now for your people is settle them in Western cities. You can't just like settle millions of people in a colony in East Africa, right? That's not going to work. Uh, so 1905, the Zionist Commission travels to East Africa. So Herzl died in, I think, 04. But the, Israel Zangwill tries to keep the dream alive. Um, but the rapporteurs from the commission are pessimistic. They see the highlands as unsuitable for agriculture. It's too far from anywhere to make a good hub. Can't support a large population, so it can't 
solve the emigration issue. Um, and even though thousands of settlers can settle there and it's a good, uh, according to one of them, good white man's land with a splendid climate, it's not going to solve their problems. So the Zionists actually expel <laughs> these uh, Africa uh, people who are into the Africa plan uh, from the Zionist organization. And they found a, the Jewish Territorial Organization, or the ITO, under Israel Zangwill. And they try to keep the dream alive. They're called they're called the territorialists. So the idea is there's like people who only want Palestine and then there's territorialists who will take land anywhere. So they try to negotiate for the whole, to get the whole of Kenya. The colonial office says no. Uh, Churchill um, thinks in 1906 that a Jewish colony deserves fair and patient consideration. Um, Zangwill negotiates with Elgin on the idea that maybe uh, the colonists could form a majority uh, and then with a Jewish majority achieve self-government. And he says that's normal. Elgin says that's normal. The PM prime minister could be Jewish with the colony British. But of course, it just this is just fizzling out because um, the reactions were so strong and it's, it's just not feasible. H.G. Um, Wells says the ITO has his sympathy, but he can offer neither help nor advice. Arthur Conan Doyle says it's a good idea to settle the Jews somewhere, but they'd all end up in Johannesburg in five years. Uh, Thomas Hardy, another intellectual, I guess, says that it's a great stepping stone to Palestine uh, for 100 years from now. The Indian reaction of not the Indian government, which is, of course, British, but the Indian people in Kenya, they don't want a Jews-only colony because they want to try to have equal rights as everybody in in, the, in mm-hmm. the colony so they're against it which is also you know they don't nobody listens to them but they're also they can be a problem because they want their cooperation there um in 1907 there's another guy ch johns who says hey there's these nestorian christians being persecuted can we have a colony in east africa <laughs> and, the, and the colonial office is like no crabs no, 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 no. Uh, the colonial office says, let's avoid as long and useless a coil of correspondence as Mr. Zangwill did about his Zionist scheme, which I now hope is extinguished. The uh, Jewish Territorial Organization goes on to study proposals for Mesopotamia, Cyrenaica, Mexico, Canada, Australia, Siberia, and Angola. But it's eventually basically shut down by the Balfour Declaration in 1917 and finally disbanded in 1925. So aftermath, um, you know, the main point that Rabkin makes is this. Out of the 1.2 million Jews who emigrated from Russia at the turn of the century, the 20th century, a mere 30,000 made Palestine their destination, and of those, only a quarter remained there. Um, You know, partly because of the size of the refugee uh, population, none of these colonization schemes would work. They needed to go to a place that could receive them, which is like a city with infrastructure and, and you know, whatever, food and jobs and the rest of it. Yeah, um, dropping 10,000 people off with shovels and saying, here you go. <laughs> but they did, they did that over and over, right, with Liberia and Sierra Leone, and they were always uniformly disastrous. Yeah. yeah. So, um, 
you know, this uh, I'll we'll pick this back up when we get to the Balfour Declaration. But I, I'd like to leave you with some words from Wiseboard, some some very Zionist words from from Wiseboard. This is the guy who wrote uh, the book I mainly used, African Zion, uh, the attempt to establish a Jewish colony in the East Africa Protectorate, nineteen o three to nineteen o five, copyright nineteen sixty eight, and Wiseboard says. How ironic that the many Jews responsible for making the desert bloom in Israel since its founding in 1948 are the children and grandchildren of those whose potential agricultural competence was so easily dismissed in 1980.